So Genesis chapter 2, we'll be looking in particular at verses 4 to 17. And this week and next Sunday evening will kind of be like one two-part message. I preached it actually as one message at uh, Covenant Baptist Church in Toronto. Uh, and in retrospect, I think it was just trying to fit too much in. But basically, what we're looking at over the next couple weeks is the context of sin. Because we're coming to Genesis 3, and if you're familiar with the biblical uh, storyline, you understand that in Genesis 3, something horrible happens. Adam rebels against God and plunges the created order into uh, uh, darkness, death, and chaos. And so we're coming up on that, and Genesis chapter 2 sets the stage. It sets the scene for the fall of mankind into sin. Many people think that Genesis 2 is a separate creation account. Uh, There are scholars of a more liberal persuasion who want to argue that Genesis 1 is one creation account and Genesis 2 is a different creation account. They feel no need to reconcile those things without the doctrine of Holy Scripture being a unified whole. And so they just want to say, Genesis 1 came from one source, Genesis 2 came from another source, and the way that we would read another ancient text and see that a couple different sources contributed, so it happens here in the Bible. Uh, But that's actually not the case at all. What you see is that Genesis 1 is looking at the big picture of creation. Genesis 1 is laying out the uh, creation of the heavens and the earth, everything. Genesis 2 zooms in on man, zooms in on mankind, because what Genesis 2 begins to do, as I said, is set us up to understand the fall of mankind into sin. So Genesis 2 begins to put a focus on Adam and Adam's context in the Garden of Eden. And so the um, sermon that I preached in Toronto on this passage, I just simply entitled The Context for Sin. But I'm going to break that down into two messages. And uh, next week, I'm going to look at the legal context for sin. And we're we're, we're going to have more of a focus on uh, the law of God and dig into that theme a little bit more more deeply. Look at law in the Garden of Eden in thorough detail. But tonight, we could call it the physical context of sin or the, the natural context of sin or even probably the filial context of sin, in that Adam is referred to in Luke chapter 4 as God's son. Uh, There is a a sense in which, aside from God as a judge, aside from God as a lawgiver, we see God's benevolence toward Adam in this passage, and the way that God lavishes grace and uh, abundance and, and bounty upon Adam apart from really focusing in on the law, there's just this context of bounty and abundance. And so that's what we're going to try to focus in on tonight. So we're going to, we're going to touch on God's law um, this evening, but next week we're going to look at it more in depth. What, what we can call tonight, what we can entitle tonight, is the natural context of Adam's sin. The first thing we're going to see is that God put Adam in a good garden. God put Adam in a good garden. 
These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. As a side note, you're going to see that phrase, these are the generations, nine more times after this in Genesis. Uh, it's, uh, some, some scholars would look at this phrase as sort of an outline or a skeleton of Genesis. And so you, you see these are the generations of this person, these are the generations of this person, these are the generations of this person. And it's, what follows is a narrative about their life and about the way that things unfold. So this is setting the scene for us. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. So we're about to hear the story of the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Pause. One of the reasons why some scholars think that this is a separate creation account from Genesis chapter 1 is because if we go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 11, uh, it says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their kind on the earth. And it was so. And Genesis 1.12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So there are those who say, see, it's a contradiction because you have already, everything had sprung up in Genesis chapter 1 verses 11. And, and that was um, uh, before the creation of man. And then you come to Genesis chapter 2 and it says, none of... No bush of the field and no small plant of the field had sprung up because there was no man. Right? So in Genesis 1, you see the plant life first and then the man. And in Genesis 2, you see the man first and then the plant life. You tracking with me? This is why some scholars say, see, it's a, it's a contradiction. But it's actually not as hard as uh, people make this out to be. The word translated in the ESV as bush and the word translated in the ESV as small plant are actually not in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. So that's actually not really that hard. <laughs> Further, the qualifier of the field gives us a certain narrowing of plant life to a specific kind of plant life. I don't think we can know for certainty exactly what kind of plant life or what kind of subcategory of plant life. Uh, is referred to here in Genesis chapter 2 verse 5, but it's clear, this is what's clear. Some plant life sprung up on the third day, that we, as we read in Genesis chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. And then there was some plant life that God had determined would not grow apart from man's cultivation of the earth. And that's what it says in Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. No bush of the field and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So all we see here is that there's two subcategories of plants, at least, that God had withheld on the third day from growing, and had uh, determined that man would have to cultivate if we were going to see that kind of plant life on the earth. So, so that's, all, that's kind of a bit of an aside, but I just want to deal with some of that technical stuff, because we may... Uh, come across it. You may run across it in conversations with others because this sort of thing is creeping in even into uh, evangelical circles. So, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, 
That's a time marker. At that time, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. At that time, God made man. And what did God do with man? Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And in the east likely just means east of the wilderness where the Israelites were wandering around at the time when they received the book of Genesis. Uh, the location of these rivers has led to all kinds of speculation about where the Garden of Eden may have been. Uh, even some wild and outlandish guesses such as Australia and the North Pole. I'm, I'm not even kidding. Um, I think it's clear enough that it's somewhere in the Middle East and not Australia and the North Pole, but we don't know exactly where. But east of the wilderness where the Israelites were wandering at the time when they received the book of Genesis. God uh, planted a garden there and there he put the man whom he had formed. What was the garden like? Well, out of the ground, verse 9 says, The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And there was lots of water there. We read about the four rivers. And there was gold there. And there was precious stones there. Look at verse 12. So I just want you to think about the bounty of the garden. Adam explicitly had food and water. Explicitly. Right on the surface of the text, verse 9 says that God caused, uh, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And there were four rivers in the vicinity. So at least Adam's basic needs were met. But I just want you to look at the language of abundance here. This was a wonderful place. Now we know that it was without sin, and so that already would make it even more wonderful than a, a nice natural context uh, that we might experience after the fall. But just look at the language that is here in the text. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Pleasant to the sight. Not only are these trees nourishing, but they're enjoyable to look at. God put Adam in uh, what appears to be a luscious garden full of wonderful vegetation that was delightful to look at, that bore fruit that Adam uh, could eat. And uh, again, look at the abundance of water there. Four rivers in the general vicinity. When people, if you look at the history of civilizations, when people are uh, trying to build a colony in an un- um, inhabited area what do they look for what do they just come and be like well here's a nice desert let's you know let's, let, let's throw up a few houses right no they look for they look for at least at the very basic uh, level they look for at least water right? and there was tons of it here um, and there was food right so this was a good place to be and not only uh, was there uh, food and, and drink but if there were trees then that means that there was also wood for building things right if there was metal in the ground like gold there was presumably other metal in the ground like uh, steel or whatever else that eventually mankind could pull and, and draw out of the ground there were precious stones in the ground there was 
work to be done, things to be developed. Uh, Adam was certainly not going to suffer from boredom in the garden. There was lots of potentiality, as we talked about a uh, number of weeks ago here in the garden. There was, there was land to be cultivated. There were uh, things to be built. There was bounty in the ground for Adam to pull out and, and draw out of the earth and form and fashion tools and form and fashion uh, beautiful aesthetic things and so on and so forth. I just want to make the point, I really haven't interpreted this text very much yet. All I've really done is just basically just tried to highlight some of this stuff. We're not left with the impression that Adam uh, was, was left on some barren, uninhabited desert island somewhere where he was to eke out an existence. But Adam was placed uh, uh, explicitly, explicitly in a place where there was lots of food and water. But, but implicitly, it's not a stretch to say that every good thing uh, that Adam could desire um, would be in this garden. Even thing, it doesn't mention the animals yet in, in uh, verses 4 to 17. It gets there a little bit later. But even think of things like animals for domestication and, and for work and for productivity. If even fallen horses and fallen dogs, for example can be helpful and useful to mankind. Imagine unfallen horses and unfallen dogs, right? Adam was in a situation of so much abundance. There was so much goodness, so much potentiality all around him. Think of a delicious fruit, whether it would be, a, be an apple or a mango or whatever it is that, that you could imagine. Think of beautiful trees that you've seen. I love to... When I sit on my front porch at night and look across to the west as the sun sets, I can see the silhouette of some palm trees on my street. And I, it's beautiful. I enjoy looking at that. I enjoy seeing that. God put beauty in the garden. God put potentiality in the garden. God, God gave Adam not the bare minimum, but so much more than the bare minimum. Think about the way that God has woven abundance and bounty into this world. Think about our five senses. Think about the eye uh, perceiving things. Like I said, just seeing the silhouette of a, of a palm tree on a night as the sun goes down. Or seeing uh, my little ones play and run around or, or whatever it is that we, that we might behold. The most breathtaking landscape. Looking up into a starry sky. Looking into the eyes of a loved one. Looking into the eyes of somebody that you care about and realizing that it's true what people say that the eyes are the windows to the soul and looking into someone's eyes and connecting with somebody. These are beautiful things that God has woven in to creation. Our, our eyesight is a wonderful gift. Or think of touch. Again, from the time we come out of our mother's womb, we, f we feel our mother's caring and nurturing touch on our bodies, running her fingers through our hair or across our baby's skin. And we, we feel uh, her nurturing hands as we grow up. We feel all sorts of textures, metal, tree bark, sand between our toes. The, think of all this beautiful sensations of touch that we feel. Maybe for some, eventually the, the intimate touch of a husband or a wife. All of these beautiful, uh, wonderful sensations that the Lord has built into this world. Or sound, you think of music and 
the way that uh, somehow, even without words, even melodies, cause our hearts to soar. And we hear, even just from instrumentation, just the sounds are beautiful. But then we, we hear the human voice, which is the instrument of instruments, singing beautiful words, uh, beautiful lyrics overlaid on top of those melodies. And it is soul-stirring. It's wonderful. We hear the voices of loved ones calling our name. These are wonderful things that the Lord has built into this creation. And you get the idea of what I'm saying. God has gone so much above and beyond bare functionality for us. We could, if God had so decreed, we could spend our lives in a sterile white room and plug ourselves into the wall to be nourished like a cell phone into a charger. And, you know, we might, we maybe might see others through plexiglass in their white sterile rooms. And the walls might be soundproof and we might never hear a sound. But the Lord could have made, conceivably, the world other than He did. But in His wisdom and in His benevolence, the Lord has created a world which is full and overflowing with goodness and bounty and abundance. And it was into this context that God placed Adam, a good garden. Now what would a good garden say about God? It would say that He is a good God. We can't make something that is better than ourselves. Right? You remember the story of uh, Frankenstein? I actually can't remember whether Frankenstein was the scientist or the creature. <laughs> but but however, the story, however the story goes, he makes this thing. He tries to make this a wonderful, amazing thing. But it's a monstrosity. It's, it's subhuman. He tries to make something that's better than human. But it's subhuman. Because we can't, by definition, make things that are better than ourselves. Everything that we make has to be lesser than ourselves. God can't make something that is better than God. That's not, that doesn't even make any sense. If you say God from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, and then He makes something, you say, oh wait, no, from that and through that and to that are all things. That doesn't even make sense. God will always be greater and bigger than whatever it is that He makes. He has to be, by definition. And so if we look at this world, and listen, we're feeling and understanding and perceiving something of what I'm saying about the pre-fall creation. But we're seeing and feeling and perceiving it using what, what we've experienced and the mental categories that we have from our experiences after the fall. Right? It resonates with you when I talk about the beauty of sight, when I talk about the beauty of our auditory sense, when, we, when I talk about the beauty of uh, touch and feeling. It resonates with you and you know something of that. Imagine how much better it would have been even before the fall. Right? And to understand that God is greater than everything that He has made. So, so three levels of goodness. Post-fall creation, where we are, there is still so much goodness here that it resonates with you when I talk about the goodness of creation. Pre-fall creation would have been even better than that. But God Himself, who created creation, who created what it has been made, God Himself is greater. God Himself is better. 
we know something of the greatness and the wonder and the glory and the beauty of God simply from looking at His creation. We know something of who God is simply from looking at His creation. By looking around and seeing the sights, looking or listening and hearing the sounds, touching all the various textures and enjoying this creation, we should be able to reason from the lesser to the greater that God must be so much better from uh, whom all these things stem. He must be even greater. He must be even better. If you were wandering around in the wilderness and you were thirsty, and let's say that you're, you're in a valley and you're wandering around and then you see this little stream trickle down from a mountain and you're hot down in the bottom of the valley and it's dry and you, you go and you, you drink some of this little stream and you taste that it's cold and that it's pure and you think, wow, this is so good. I'm so glad I came upon this little trickle coming from the top of the mountain. It should stand to reason that if you can get up there, it's going to be so much better. It's going to be cooler and there's going to be more of this and in abundance. Right? If we can uh, enjoy creation so much, it should stand to reason that we can enjoy God so much more. So much more. So a good creation should lead us to understand that there is a good God. Let me use a couple of other adjectives uh, that maybe we're not accustomed to thinking about God in these terms, but a beautiful creation should lead us to think that there is a beautiful God. A a joy-filled, bounteous creation should help us to understand that there is a joy-filled and bounteous God. If we can tap into creation, and find so much satisfaction and delight, it should stand to reason that if we can somehow tap into God, as it were, that we could be filled with so much more satisfaction and delight. God gave Adam everything that he needed, not only for basic survival, but for flourishing, for joy, for satisfaction, for delight, for wonder, for amazement, for productivity, for a, a sense of fulfillment and so on and so forth. And we could go on and on like that. Every good thing that Adam would need was woven into creation, including the potentiality for relationship with his creator. So a good creation, a good creation testifies to us of a good God. Now I want to I just touch, I'm not going to really get into talking about God's law tonight. We're going to look at that in greater detail next week and look at God's law in Genesis chapter 2 and the legal context of the fall. But I just want, to, I just want you to notice this. Before the fall, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 50, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So Adam was instructed to do something. And Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In this good, bounteous creation, before the fall, 
There was already law. There was already law. God already commanded for Adam to do something. And God already prohibited Adam from doing something. And I simply want to make the point tonight. This is the main point that I want to make on the law tonight. Law in principle is not an inhibitor of our joy. Law in principle is not opposed to human flourishing. Law is not standing in the way of us living a full, enjoyable, vitalized, exuberant life. Law is not an obstacle to human flourishing. Law is not an obstacle to real life. Law is not an obstacle to joy. We see that simply from the fact that Adam was put in a beautiful, wonderful, bounteous, good garden by a beautiful, wondrous, bountiful, good God. And law wasn't sort of the black sheep of the family. The what, what, you know, like Sesame Street, one of these things does not belong here. There's a good garden and a good God, but a bad law, right? What we have to understand is that there was a good garden and a good God who gave a good law. The law is not opposed to our delight. The law is not opposed to our life. The law is not opposed to our flourishing. God's commandments and God's prohibitions are not in the way of us living life to the fullest. And that's just what I want to touch on tonight as we uh, think about the natural context of Adam's sin. Law is not the problem uh, in this world. Our breach of it is the problem. And we'll come to that more next week. But the presence of law in our lives is not a problem. It doesn't stand in the way of living life to the fullest. This is how the psalmist could say, I delight to do your law. Uh, This is how the psalmist could say, uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a, and a light unto my path. I delight in, in your law, oh my God. All these things that we read, all through, go read Psalm 119. The psalmist loves God's law. He doesn't see God's law as a bad thing. He sees God's law as a good thing. One of the good gifts that God put in the garden for Adam was his law. And even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is New Covenant Christianity. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The law is a good and wonderful thing placed there alongside sunrises and sunsets and mangoes and unfallen horses and all of these good and beautiful and wonderful things that God put in the garden is God's good law. And so we have a good garden, a good God, a good law, and Adam should therefore be a good man. But was Adam a good man? No. And this is, the, this is uh, part of the context of uh, his sin. We need to understand that, aside from the legality of it, uh, which we'll talk about more next week, I just want to talk about the stupidity of it. There is a good garden, and a good God, and a good law. What would make you think that your flourishing is to be found in rebelling against the good God and His good law? What would make you think that somehow I am just going to do things 
in a different way than the creator said. And that's, that's the best way forward. That is stupid. God's design is for life. God's design is for flourishing. God's design is for Adam's happiness. We've seen already in the text tonight that God is not a cosmic killjoy. God didn't put Adam in this drab, boring garden. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. God didn't put Adam in this little wilderness. God didn't put Adam in, you know, this, this white sterile room that I mentioned earlier and get Adam to plug himself into the wall, right? And Adam looked through the window and saw mangoes out there and decided to go for it. No, God put Adam in a place of plenty, a place of abundance, a place of bounty, where Adam would want for no good thing. We even read that, that the Lord God himself walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And so God gave Adam everything that he would need for his flourishing, including his law. Including his law. That's what Adam would need for his flourishing. So aside from just the legality of God's law and the guilt and the covenant and so on and so forth, which we're going to talk about next week, I just want to drive home the point that sin is stupid. Sin is really, really stupid. But we need to understand that it's not just Adam that is stupid. I'm stupid. And you're stupid. We're all stupid. Because we get in our minds that God's law is an inhibitor of our joy. We get in our minds that if we can just break free from God's law, then we're going to be really living. If we can just get out from under God's thumb, everything's going to be fine. The way God says, no, man, that's going to lead to our death. That's going to lead to our suffocation. That's going to lead to our misery. We don't need God's law. We need to go our own way. We've all thought like this. This is what's going on at the root every time we sin. We think that God has not given us what we need for our joy. We think that God has not given us what we need for our flourishing. We think that somehow life will be better in disobedience to God than in obedience to God. And so the joke is not on Adam, the joke is on us. Right? It's not just Adam that has pie on his face, we got pie on our face. We all, every single human being has done something stupid in rebelling against God and every time, every time that we sin, it's an instance of stupidity. We need to understand that God's law was given to us for our flourishing, for our life, for our joy, for our delight. That living God's way within God's parameters, looking to God to satisfy us, is the best way to live. It's not only our duty to obey, it's also our delight to obey. It's also our delight to obey. I don't agree with everything that John Piper says for the record, but I think Piper has been really, really, really helpful on this point. That there is joy to be found in the pursuit of God. That there is joy to be found in obedience to God. That there is joy to be found in walking in the way of God's commandments. That there is delight 
for our hearts, that there is satisfaction for our hearts, that we can actually crave something better than anything that this world can afford. There's that old C.S. Lewis quote, uh, which you've probably heard Piper quote before, or a a myriad of people have quoted it before, but C.S. Lewis said, God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're like children playing in a mud puddle, not knowing what is meant by a vacation at the sea. We're fooling around with money and drink and ambition and sex when at God's right hand are pleasures evermore. It's true. We think that this world is going to give us more than God. That somehow we're going to find our joy and our delight and our satisfaction in a man or a woman or, or multiple men or multiple women or a big job or a new car or this career advancement or we this is stupid right back right back to Adam in the garden it's crazy talk that we would think that somehow somehow what we really need is not life within God's parameters but life outside of God's parameters and that will be better out there there is joy there is delight to be found in obedience to God now listen listen here Sin has infected and impacted this world. And we live now in a corrupted world in which the entire and total absence of suffering is not possible. It's not. Nobody can avoid suffering. Even Jesus, who came and lived among us and yet was without sin, could not avoid suffering. But I just want to point out that for Jesus, for Jesus, finding satisfaction in God and in obedience to the Father and in living His life God's way was better than, and, and, and then embracing whatever suffering that entailed was better than suffering for doing evil, as Peter says. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well while the disciples went to go get food in a nearby town. And then it says, when they came back, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I'm already satisfied. I'm already satisfied. See, Jesus, for Jesus, joy was to be had in doing the Father's will while feeling the hunger pains. Rather than quelling the hunger pangs and being outside of the Father's will. For Jesus, living life corandeo before the face of God, doing the Father's will, staying within the Father's parameters and embracing whatever suffering that might entail was still the most joyful way forward. Listen, that is just as true for all of us as it was for Jesus. Living life God's way, within God's parameters, seeking our satisfaction in in He Himself and uh, within the parameters of His law, that is still the best way forward. And embracing all of the suffering that that entails, it's still the most joyful way forward. For the Christian, it is still the path to blessedness and fullness of heart 
and joy and delight. You want to see a happy Christian? Look for a holy Christian. You want to see somebody whose heart is full and overflowing? Look for someone who's communing with God in His Word and in prayer. You want to see somebody with real life emanating from them? Look for somebody who knows God, who walks with God, who lives in obedience to God. And you want to look for somebody miserable? Look for a backsliding Christian. The way forward to joy, to delight, to satisfaction is the way of embracing life the way God designed it. Adam did not do that. There was a, a good garden, a good God, a good law, and a bad man. So what then? Is that where the story ends? Just, well, don't be like Adam. Or go out there and obey. Right? It's the way to your joy. Go out there. Have a, have a nice week and obey God. That's the way to joy. Now we got to talk about a good man because we didn't get there. Right? We just got to a good garden, a good God, a good law, a bad man. Now we got to talk about the good man. Jesus Christ. As I just read from John chapter 4. He said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7, uh, we read this quote applied to Jesus. Uh, pardon me, verses 5 to 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And I read that from Hebrews just to um, point out that where that quote is taken from, Psalm chapter 40, is applied in the New Testament explicitly to Christ. And let me read, let me read from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. And remember that in the New Testament, this is applied to Christ. So this is, we're fair to read this. It's fair to read this as Christ speaking. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The law was within Christ's heart and he delighted to do God's will. It would have just been so fitting for Adam to obey God. It just would have been so fitting for Adam to look at his benevolent heavenly father and delight to do his father's will. But Adam didn't do it. But Christ Jesus came and as was fitting, as a good son, as a perfect son, he delighted to do His Father's will. Christ Jesus lived among us doing His Father's will, seeking His joy in God Himself and in the provision that God had made for His joy and within the parameters that God had set for Him. That's where Jesus found His joy and found His satisfaction. It was His delight to live within that framework. And so, for all of us, who have uh, poverty in this respect. We have an absence of goodness. Adam wasn't a good man. He was a bad man, and I'm a bad man too. 
and all of you are bad men and bad women, we can look to this good man, Jesus, the Son of God who delighted to do the Father's will and see Him as our substitute righteousness, our surety who has answered the demands of the law for us, and we can place our faith in Him. And we can look to the cross where Christ Jesus bled and died and see that it was there. My stupidity and your stupidity for looking for life and looking for joy outside of God's parameters was nailed to the cross. We can look at Jesus and find forgiveness for our sin. Forgiveness for looking for joy, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment anywhere else. And we can find forgiveness for that when we look at Jesus. And we can see in, uh, not only in Jesus' life, in Jesus' example, but in, in all of Scripture, that the way forward, having been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, that the way forward to our joy, to our delight, and to our satisfaction is in the law of God. The law of God is like, command, is like train tracks. They don't have the power, train tracks don't have the power to move the train. But train tracks are the path along which the train travels, having found propulsion from elsewhere. And so when we are regenerated by God's Holy Spirit, when we are reconciled to God by faith, when we are uh, motivated by the gratitude and the thankfulness that comes from the gospel, when we get a picture of God's glory and we realize we want to live for His glory, when we find that kind of gospel propulsion, we realize that the way forward to our joy, to our satisfaction, to our delight, and to our fulfillment is along the train tracks of God's commandments. And so, uh, just as for Adam, that would have been the best way for him to live, the most delightful, the most joyful, the most fulfilling, the most satisfying way for him to live. Having been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ, we got to see also that the way of holiness the way forward is looking for joy in God Himself and in the things that He provides for our goodness, or for our satisfaction, including common graces within the parameters that He sets for us. Uh, we have to understand that this is the best way forward for us. And instead of sinning like Adam and looking for joy and satisfaction and fulfillment outside of that, we should follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who found it to be his deepest joy to live in obedience to the Father. And so, uh, good garden, a good God, a good law, a bad man, Adam, and a good man, Christ Jesus. This is the context that Genesis 2 uh, helps to set for understanding the fall and eventually for understanding our redemption from the fall.